Would you open your Bibles to Revelation 2? We're reading from verse 8 to verse 11. Revelation 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let me pray. Father, as I pray this morning, that my words would be what scripture says. Lord, help me make it clear to us what your word says to the suffering church and what it means for us today. Amen. It's one thing to stand up here and talk about Charles Spurgeon and William Tyndale. I can do that, but I feel a bit sick right now at the thought of doing this. Uh, Move back. It really, it really is an awesome responsibility. I'm not, I shouldn't be flippant. I do, I do feel uh, a little strange. I'm amazed at Janine's choice of songs. The Apostles' Creed is the first one. As I was singing that, and I'm thinking, if I was a church in Smyrna, that's what I'd be singing. And Beck, I must have left my sermon notes lying around somewhere, because she, she just read from them. You shouldn't do that, Beck. So this is a letter, the second letter. We know that it's Jesus writing this letter. He told us in chapter 1. And it starts, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. The word translated angel there is the same word that's used, translated angel in other places, but it actually means messenger. So an angel is a messenger. So this is a letter from Christ to a church, but it's through a messenger, right? There's an angel of the church. And so people like Mark Dever and Phil Johnson say, oh, that messenger is the senior pastor. So here's a letter to the senior pastor to read to his church. So Smyrna, we don't know much about it. It's about two, it was about two days' walk from Ephesus. Chris talked about Ephesus last week. But there's no mention of this church anywhere else in the New Testament. Uh, Acts 19 has Paul going to Ephesus and verse 10 says that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So when it talks about Asia, it means that part of Europe around Turkey. So Smyrna today is known as Izmir. It's a a small uh, harbour town in Turkey. Perhaps the church was started by the work of Paul, but we don't know. So the author introduced himself, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Those refer back to chapter 1 and verse 18 where Jesus called himself the first and the last. It's a reminder of his divinity. But then he says, who died and came to life. So there's a reminder of his humanity that he died. 
the letter tells the church in Smyrna a great deal about the one that's writing to them, the one they've placed their hope in. At the time of writing, there was serious persecution of Christians by the uh, Roman emperor Domitian. And this letter is meant to encourage them as Christ's disciples. He reminds the persecuted church of three things that are going to help them to endure this persecution. These three things come from the risen Son of God. They are Christ's comfort, Christ's control, and Christ's command. Christ's comfort, Christ's control, and Christ's command. So firstly, his comfort. Verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The word comfort never used to mean what it means now. It comes from two Latin words, cum forte. If you're a musician, you know what forte means. It used to mean with power. So Christ is the comfort of the church, the first and the last. He comes with power. He'll stand with this church in the midst of battle. He'll enable them to stand. He is the same Christ that stands with us today. The comfort that the church in Smyrna has is knowing that the power of Christ is theirs. He is in them. This comfort is based on the fact that he knows. Right? Verse 9 started with, I know. Now, this is not something you should do, but I was sitting in church, I don't know, about a month ago, thinking about this. Someone was up here. <laughs> Doesn't matter who, because the problem's mine. And I was thinking, I read that, it just was in my head, it's been on my head for a long time, and I thought, what does he know? Well, the text tells us what he knows. He knows three things. He knows their tribulation, he knows their poverty, and he knows the slander of the supposed people of God. The word translated tribulation means pressure. So what was the pressure? It was the terrible persecution they were suffering. There's torture, there's death, there's loss of civil rights, hatred of family or friends. Rather than being part of society, the Christians at the time would be ostracised. Loss of income, loss of property, maybe loss of family. This is what led to their poverty. So he knows their poverty too. But the word translated poverty doesn't mean just poor as measured by the ABS. It means destitute, without anything. They lost everything. And that happens to some people around the world today, even Christians who are persecuted. They can lose everything. Get up and walk away or you're going to die. So how would you cope? Not just by losing your job, but losing your house and any chance of earning an income, how would you care for your family? What would you do? You can't stay there. What are you going to do? If you do stay, you don't know what will happen. Now, I don't understand what that would be like, but the church in Smyrna did, and Christ did, because he said, I know. But there's a contrast inserted here, and this is what Beck talked about. But you are rich. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Christ says, the, the text says that Christ became poor for our sake, so that by his poverty we might become rich. In James 2 and verse 5, it says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith 
and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. In Matthew 6 and verse 19, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So when Christ says to the church, you are rich, he's not talking about right now. He's talking about what's coming. You are rich in heaven. The riches are an inheritance. So that means something that comes later. Christ also knows the slander that was levelled against them. Now the word translated slander is the word that's usually translated blasphemy, but blasphemy is saying something against God that's not true. But here the blasphemous claims are made against the Smyrna church, the Christians. They were accused of hating Caesar, of not worshipping Caesar like they should, and all other sorts of terrible acts. Uh, John Fox, in uh, his book, Nail Known as the Fox's Book of Martyrs, says this. A variety of fabricated tales during Domitian's reign composed in order to injure the Christians. Oh, sorry, a, a variety of fabricated tales were composed in order to injure the Christians. And this is what they said. If famine, pestilence or earthquakes afflicted any of the Roman provinces, and Rome was a big empire, it was laid upon the Christians. So they were blamed for natural disasters. Now the informers, people would inform on people they found out to be Christians. They increased in number. They did it for hatred or for money. And here we have Jews, supposedly the people of God, turning against God's people. To mark the distinction between those two, Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. Now, he says he knows these things. I know your tribulation, your poverty and the slander. But how does he know? Well, he knows because he suffered the same things. His trial and murder carried the same three things. He was physically tortured. He suffered greatly and was killed at the hands of the Romans and the Jews. They took all his earthly possessions. They cast lots for them, remember? He had nothing. And they slandered him. When they were beating him, tell us who's hitting you. When they put him on the cross, there was a sign above him, king of the Jews. And some of them said, come on, come down. This is slander. This was contempt for the Son of God. So he knows what it is to suffer, to have lost everything, to be slandered. But he is the victorious, reigning Son of God. And this is the comfort that he gives to the church in Smyrna. Verse 10, Christ's control. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. So he starts with saying, do not fear. We all know fear. It's a natural response when we're faced with a situation and we don't know what to do. If we uh, haven't come across something before, if we think something bad is going to happen, that can evoke the emotion of fear. Sometimes it's a real situation, like I'm sure those people that are suffering through the bushfires. Sometimes it's an imagined situation. We think, oh, what if? And we get caught up in the what ifs. 
Now, some of us will use an expression like, don't worry. Now, that's a, a way that we'll say something to someone to try and uh, impart some empathy and to encourage them, to let the other person know that we're there, we're thinking of them, that we think things will be okay, that the situation won't get any worse. It's not based on anything in us or what we can do, but it's based on our view of situation and our experience with life. Uh, one of your kids, if you've got kids at school, might have an exam coming up, they've studied, they've worked hard, but very often they'll be fearful of that exam. And as a parent, you might say, don't worry, don't be fearful, it'll be okay. Now, we don't know what the exam is, we didn't set the exam, we're not sitting the exam, but we still say that as a parent. We don't even know what the consequences will be if they do fail. We're not sovereign. So on what basis can the child have any trust that when we say don't worry, that they shouldn't worry? In this case, it's only on the relationship between the parent and the child that the child can think, oh, mum says it'll be all right. I don't need to worry. The trust that no matter what happens, the relationship stays solid. It's the relationship that's key. So when Jesus tells the people in the church in Smyrna not to fear, why shouldn't they fear? Because of their relationship with him, who he is and what he's done. So he says to them, do not fear what you are about to suffer. He's reminding this church of his omniscience, the fact that he knows everything. He knows what's going to happen. They are about to suffer. Now, if you put yourself there, you might think, uh, already doing it. And Jesus is saying, yep, and there's more to come. Nowhere in this letter is there any criticism of this church. So Chris pointed out last week in Ephesus, there's criticism of the church. But in this letter, there's none. So it's safe to assume that this church did not fear. They trusted their Lord. Now, he's not saying, I will remove the Roman tyranny. I will make up for all the abuse that you've suffered. He's just giving them a promise of more. And then he gives them further details to bolster the claim of his omniscience. He says, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison and for 10 days you will have tribulation. So many Christians will read that and think, oh, yes, oh, bad stuff happens all the time. But Jesus knows it's happening and he'll be with me and he'll be there with me at the end. Hopefully he'll help me or he'll take it away. I just need to trust him because he's sovereign. If that's you, that's a deficient understanding of what it means to say God is sovereign. To say he's sovereign is to trust him at all times, in all circumstances, knowing he is completely and totally in control and that he has brought upon you whatever happens. It is to acknowledge his omniscience his omnipresence and his omnipotence. Now, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is one of the most encouraging and strengthening doctrines in all of Scripture. 
I um, was looking around a little bit, I came across a quote that people uh, say Charles Spurgeon said, you know, the sovereignty of God is the pillow on which Christian rests his head. I don't know if anybody's heard that. He never said that. Now, I've heard, I mean, it's on John Piper's Facebook page for Desiring God. I've heard Mike Riccardi say it. So, you know, people say things that maybe, uh, you know, have good intentions, but it was never said. Spurgeon actually said this. I am persuaded that the doctrine of predestination, the blessed truth of providence, is one of the softest pillows upon which the Christian can lay his head and one of the strongest staffs upon which he may lean in his pilgrimage along the rough road. So God is in complete control, always has been. Nothing happens without his explicit command. This is what it means to say God is sovereign. He's not sitting in heaven going, just enjoying the praise of the angels and some tattletale angel turns up and says, you'll never guess what Satan's done. Oh, what now? Doesn't do that. Not taken by surprise. Doesn't respond. He has decided and determined and is aware everything. That's what the sovereignty of God means. Now, the ones that are cast into prison here are going to have tribulation for 10 days. They're already going through it. So I think it's safe to assume that whatever happens in prison is going to be a lot worse. He's going to persecute. Satan is going to persecute some of these Christians. Now, he's blamed for what is going to happen. Satan is going to cast some of you into prison. But he's a spiritual being, so he can't physically do that. So he has help. He has help from the Romans, the authorities, the soldiers, and the Jews. So Satan is what's called the proximate cause. There's some theological terms I'm going to give you. Preparation for my third Monday night talk later in the year. Be there. So Satan is called the proximate cause. That means proximate is uh, close by, near to. The soldiers, the authorities, the Jews are called the efficient cause. They're the ones that actually carry out the evil acts. But God is sovereign. So does that really mean that everything that happens under his, is under his control and at his direction? Does that mean that Satan is under God's control? That he does nothing without God's command? That he's not independent? Well, the answer has to be yes. Now, it's very clear throughout Scripture, and here in this verse, that God ordains everything that happens. And you need to keep that word in your head. Everything. Ephesians 1.11. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things, not just some things, not just good things, but all things. That means even what we think are bad things. God is the ultimate cause of all things. But what's the good in the situation then? If the text, Scripture says that God works all things for the good of those who love him, what's the good? Well, he tells us in this verse. So have a look. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, comma, that you may be tested. 
there's the good. So God is going to test them. Why is he testing them? 1 Peter 1 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The testing of our faith gives glory and honour to God. He's reminding the Smyrna church that God has ordained what will be and that their confidence has to be in the one who's writing to them, a sovereign son of God. Now this has always been the comfort of Christians. Following the loss of his possessions, Job in chapter 1 and his children, remember his children were killed too, Job said in 121, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Remember who came to God asking for permission. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then in chapter 2, when his wife was giving him some loving advice, after Satan attacked his health, he says, Shall we receive from God, sorry, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In his book, book, The Mystery of Providence, John Flavel, the English Puritan, wrote this. In all the sad and afflictive providences that befall you, I, God, as the author and orderer of them also. He is still the same God today. And we should have the same confidence. A correct understanding of God's sovereignty and a strong confidence in Christ's control will lead us to affirm with the Apostle Paul in Romans 11 and 36 where he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So the church has the comfort of Christ because he knows. They know Christ is in control because he he says, do not fear. Thirdly, they have Christ's command. Look at the last part of verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So the command to the church, it's very simple. Be faithful unto death. How hard can that be? It's pretty scary. In this country, most of us don't understand what that would be like. I can't identify with that. I can handle it intellectually, and that's it. But he's talking to people who are facing the real prospect of death, and he says, be faithful unto death, no matter what. The word translated faithful means steady, uh, to trust, to believe. Now, in Paul's writings... He talks a lot about faithful and he uses it to talk about holding f- fast to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That means what faithful means, being steady, not swayed by false doctrine, being solid and straight. But Jesus gave a few parables when he talked about faithful and it's a slightly different meaning. And I think that's what is meant here. It also means to use well what you have been given 
all that we have, life, breath, home, job, family, skills, experience, friendships, everything is from God. And it has one purpose, and that's for us to use it for his glory. So in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, there's a story of a, um, a rich master going away on a holiday or whatever, and he left large sums of money with three of his servants. On his return, he examined the servants, and two of them were found to have done well with what he had entrusted to them. And do you remember what he said? Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So Jesus' command to the church, Smyrna church is to hold fast to the faith once for all delivered to the saints, but also to use what they had right up to the end of life. We are to exhaust our resources, ourselves, in his service. And if we do, there is a promise that we will receive a heavenly reward. Those who give up everything on earth will receive a king's reward in heaven. James 1.12 Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. For those of you who know the Westminster Shorter Catechism, first question, what is the chief end of man? Answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So everything you have, all that you are, all that you do, one purpose, glorify God. How you live, how you die, that's what will glorify God. Verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So Christ's conclusion to this church he finishes, he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This letter makes no sense to non-Christians. Only someone with the ears of saving faith can make sense of what this says. To the world, this is foolishness. All you have to do is recant. Just say you worship this emperor. That's all you've got to do to do away with the persecution not going to happen and each letter has the same encouragement for the Christians in the churches the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death the word translated conquer in older versions of the English Bible was often overcome and to overcome carries more of a sense of the struggle that the Christians are going through so conquering pictures um, you know success overcoming pictures the struggle to get over. The struggle's not easy. And it doesn't end until this life ends. But God is faithful. Romans 8 and verse 36. As it is written, for your, that's God's sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
So Paul's reminding his readers, no matter what happens physically, nothing can separate them from God. Perseverance comes from a genuine faith. That genuine faith will be tested, and that genuine faith means God's elect will not face the judgment of the second death. So what is this second death? Turn over to Romans 20. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what is written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You don't want to be there. Now, the Smyrna church survived despite all this persecution. And John Fox records the martyrdom of a guy named Polycarp 70 years later. Polycarp was the bishop of the church of Smyrna. He was 86 years old when he was killed. He was burned alive. He went to his death, giving testimony to the faithfulness of God, and he did not recant. He did not shrink from death. And we too need to look at ourselves and think, how would we respond? And ask God to give us the strength, the comfort that comes from knowing The all-powerful, sovereign Son of God lives in us. This same Jesus comforts us with his omniscience, gives us confidence because of his control of all things, and he commands us to be faithful with everything that we've been given. This letter to the church is not like a sympathy card. We open it up. With love and prayers, may God's peace surround you at this difficult time. If you were one of those people, what do you think if you got one of these? And it does not comfort me. This letter is meant to encourage this church. The encouragement comes from the one who's writing it. And as we have seen today, so up to this point in the service, it's all about Jesus. Let's give praise and honour to him for all he does. Will you bow with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it speaks so clearly of the work of Jesus Christ. Would you help us to trust him and help us to use all we have, all that you have given us for his glory and in his service. Amen.